You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, as we enter your word this morning, uh, let it be with delight and awe and excitement. I pray that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word to us so that we might honor you and obey you in everything we do today and in the days to come. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need no further revelation. We need no further word from anyone. We simply need to read the word and let the Holy Spirit illuminate it into our lives. Let us do that this morning with, with delight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we were together, we looked at um, this thing I'm working this morning, so technology has failed us. But we were looking together at the canon of Scripture and talked about the fact that it's closed. Now, in, in, interestingly enough, I had a conversation with someone who was in the store this week, and I just want to share this as kind of a, this is sort of the overall idea we're going to be returning to again and again. The Scripture is sufficient. The Word of God that we have today is sufficient. I, I actually don't like the word sufficient because it's more than sufficient. But sufficient's a good word. It means that it's adequate to the task of providing everything that is necessary for a, for a, a born-again believer to grow in the Lord, to understand the Lord, and to take the gospel to the world. There's nothing else needed. And this fellow came in, and we've had some discussions before, and he mentioned to me how he knows I think prophecy is closed, but he thinks prophecy is going. I said, okay, so stop. Stop. Let's talk about this. If prophecy is still happening, then I need the names of these teachers because we need to collate what they're saying. We need to put it down in writing. We need to add it to the strong concordance. We need to add it to all of the teaching words, all of the teaching tools that we have today because if their word is prophecy, and what I read in the scripture that prophecy is words directly breathed from the mouth of God into the, to the prophets that uh, were forthtelling what God wanted for the late nation of Israel and in the New Testament what he wanted for the church, then his, these people's words are every bit as important as Paul's. And we need to be studying them. We need to be, we need to be understanding and parsing the words and the tenses just like we do with every other. And he, said, he stepped back and he said, well, I haven't thought of it that way. I said, so get me these names so we can get this started. We can actually get a, a compilation of their effective teachings and add them to the canon of Scripture. Or... And I was, I was just about that animated because it was just, I, I was at the end of my patience with this. I'm sorry. And this fellow and I have a pretty good relationship. I said, so who is this person? Who are these people? Let's get it written down. He said, I hadn't thought of it that way. I said, the canon of Scripture is closed. And at the end of the New Testament, John warned people what would happen if they added to that, to that word. He also warned people what would happen if they took away from it. We... What this tells me is people do not trust the Scripture. It doesn't have what we need. It is not adequate to the task of equipping God's people to, to live and to serve as Christians should. And so at any rate, the discussion went on, and, and I think he's hopefully, by God's grace, not by my candor and, and, and passion, that he's in the process of changing his mind. Because the fact is, the canon of Scripture is closed, the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, was the last book 
the Lord penned for us. It is all we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And so as Paul, now we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 12, which will be, we will be returning to this concept again and again. That the canon of Scripture is closed. That what, what occurred in the New Testament, much of what occurred in the New Testament was for the founding of the church. And, and we don't see some of it today. We see some of it. We're going to be talking about the spiritual gifts. We're going to be looking at uh, a, a group of people who had figured out the best ways to misuse them or to not use them. And we're going to be looking at what not to do, according to Corinthians. So let's read the first chapter of, or excuse me, the chapter we're going to be studying. We'll go from chapter 12. We're going to read 1 through uh, 11. We will get through a few of those today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spirituals, brethren, the word gifts is added. The actual text says concerning spirituals. I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another the gifts of healing by the, by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So a couple of things to start with. <coughs> Note that the words, as I said, the word gifts is, is in italics. It does not appear in the original. The actual translation would read, Now concerning spirituals, brethren. Contextually, though, starting at verse, with verse 4, the spiritual is identified as charismata, or gifts. Paul does not want them to be untutored. He does not want them to be foolish. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He doesn't want them to be without knowledge about spiritual gifts. The word translation, uh, translated unaware can even be translated in error, or wrong. Paul does not want them, he wants them to be right about spiritual gifts, about the spirituals. The implication is, it's easy to, it's, it, you can be wrong about them. Duh. How, are, how good are we at being wrong about things? I, I, I always use the Corinthians as an example, but, but the modern church is no different. We can, we can misconstrue and misunderstand and misapply the Word of God. Now, Paul uses the term brethren. It's clear that they are unaware and that he must correct them. Although he uses that term, it's a, it's a loving, it's a close term. It's, a, it's clear that they're unaware, that they're incorrect, that they're false, that they're untutored, and he must correct them. So this is going to introduce an extraordinarily important subject, and one about which Paul wants them to have no misunderstandings. He is about to teach them regarding some of the wondrous tools that the Holy Spirit provides for ministry to every Christian, to every Christian. The overarching tendency of humanity is to pervert the truth of Scripture and to misuse and pervert the gifts that God has given us. Whether those gifts are money or spiritual or talents, we are experts at misusing them. But we can be, and often are, by the grace of God, becoming experts at properly using them. 
one of the implications of this verse is that it is possible to know the truth, possible and, and uh, very possible, I should say, to know the truth about spirituals, about spiritual gifts. This should have been a comfort to the Corinthians and to us. The gifts are given to build up, not to tear down. So that, that's kind of the introduction after the introduction, which was introduced by an introduction of introducing over the last few weeks. Any questions about verse 1? Verse 2. You know, now he's talking to them about something that they know. You know that in your past, he says, that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. It's an interesting, an interesting verse in how it's translated. Prior to their conversion, the Corinthians were easily led into idolatry and other wicked practices. They were, they were easily led both uh, because of their sinful, sinful predilection, which all of mankind has, and because the fact is, prior to regeneration, the unbelieving mind is captive to wickedness. We can't will righteousness. We can't will to go to the right, in the right direction. All we can do is choose our poison. That's all the unbelieving mind can do. There's, there is this view that non-Christians are much freer than Christians. The idea is that they are not constrained by all these rules and regulations. This could not be any further from the truth, in fact. <laughs> the fact is that those who are unbelievers are captive in their minds and in their souls. When regeneration comes and faith in Christ is born, true freedom comes. Now, the freedom that a Christian experiences, as we read in the book of Galatians and, and elsewhere in, this, in the New Testament scriptures, um, is by, by degrees. We don't instantly apprehend all of the wondrous truths of the doctrine, of, and doctrines of the scripture and say, oh, I got it all, I'm free, I'm the man, look out, world. It takes years of study and of, of working from grace to grace that the Holy Spirit removes the shackles that many of us had before we were, before we were saved and those things that we brought into our, 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 our believing. Um, true freedom comes, but it comes slowly sometimes. The idea was, in this verse was that they were led in one way or another. Even if they wanted to escape, they could not. They were led to this pagan idea, or they were led to that pagan idea by their unbelieving minds. They were never led to God by their unbelieving minds. This is true of all unbelievers. It was true of us before the Lord regenerated and redeemed us. It was very true. And it's important to note that when we are saved, we bring with us into the Christian life many false ideas about life that the, the Holy Spirit, that the Lord of glory has to remove from us by degrees. It is important in all areas of life to subject our ideas to Scripture, not the other way around. We do not subject Scripture to our ideas. We use the Word of God in the way it was intended to, to reprove, to correct, to instruct, and to fit us for the, all the righteousness and all the deeds that God wants us to do. There is another connection here, though, in that the practice that they were following were vestiges of their old life. Paul is making that allusion here. The ecstasy, the tongues, the chaos, and other misapplications of the spiritual gifts that Paul will deal with in these next three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, were born in the womb of their paganism. In our lives, it would have been they were born in the womb of our unbelieving, whatever our unbelieving was. It is apparent that some of the Corinthians had fallen back into their old idolatrous beliefs and practices, much to the dismay of Paul and to the detriment of the church. He had a holy zeal for building up the church. He was 
part of the founding generation of apostles who, who gave us that Jesus, that the scripture says that the Lord and the apostles are the cornerstone, the foundation, I should say, of the, of the church. And Paul knew that they had to get it right. They must get it right. And so he did not want them to be ignorant. He did not want them to be misled. He was seeing a falling back into the old ways in this area. Remember, they were suing one another. They were, they were eating the food at, the, at the, the Lord's Supper ahead of each other. They were doing things intentionally against what they had been taught. And so Paul's going to instruct them. So verse 2, um, you were pagan, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Whatever led you, it led you astray. It didn't lead you to the kingdom. The Holy Spirit regenerated them and led them in the right direction. Any questions or comments about verse 2? Verse 3, therefore, now, and this is a startling, a startling thing, because Paul would only say this to correct something that was happening at the time. Therefore, he says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is evident from this verse that at some point during the church services in Corinth, people were blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers were probably blaspheming, possibly blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't doing it by the Holy Spirit. It is one of the results of an uncontrolled ecstatic experience that often utterances will be inexplicable, tortured, at odds with the truth, and even blasphemous. Paul lays down a bedrock principle that if someone speaks negatively about the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not being led by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, if one of the tests of whether someone is truly led by the Spirit or not is that they are reverent and in awe of God and, and correct about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. They will speak lovingly and approvingly and in a wholesome scriptural way about the Lord Jesus. One of the results of defining and judging everything by experience rather than by scripture is a devolving into an improper and even blasphemous behavior. Slowly but surely, as we began to examine and judge our life by our experiences, if we examine and judge the scripture by our experiences, we will, people will devolve into idolatry, to blasphemy, into, into all sorts of, of possible even heresy. Apparently, the Corinthians had become so enamored of the ecstatic experience that they experienced as pagans that they were doing things that were at once startling and horrifying in the church services. The Spirit will never incite, encourage, teach, or in any way denigrate the Lord Jesus Christ. He will always teach and, in, and incite and encourage and illuminate a reverence and an awe and a respect and a love and a delight for the Lord Jesus. So one of the things that they did, apparently, was to curse Jesus. Now, I, I, there's different ways to curse Jesus. You can outwardly simply say that. I can't even bring my ways, my, myself to say it. But you can say those two words in a sentence, and you can, you can actually denigrate the Lord. Or you can say things that are just patently untrue about him. And that is in itself almost an effective curse, uh, especially for those that are hearing it, if they believe you. One of those things... One commentator implies that this could result from the infiltration of Gnosticism into the church at, at the time. Spiritual things were lifted up while physical things were degraded. Remember when we went through Colossians, we looked at how Paul dealt with this, this 
false theology of Gnosticism that, that the, the spirit was important, but the flesh was unimportant. You could do anything you wanted in the flesh as long as you were spiritual, as long as you had the right ideas, the lofty ideas about God and the spiritual aspects of life. Doesn't matter what you did in your body. False, gong. <laughs> he said this. Uh, one commentator put it this way. Um, the only, only one thing seems to explain why such a wicked condition could have come to exist, especially in a church established and pastored by Paul himself. During the first century, everything physical and natural is evil, and that everything supernatural, or excuse me, it taught, this thing, it taught, Gnosticism, that everything physical and natural is evil, and that everything supernatural and spiritual is good. When adapted to Christianity, it taught that the supernatural Christ only appeared to be natural Jesus. That's docetism. Uh, Jesus only appeared to be human, a false teaching that, that even infiltrates the church today. It taught that only, he only appeared to be natural. The human Jesus was an imperfect, evil, and poor reputation, representation of the spiritual Son of God, who, because of his divine nature, could not possibly have taken a physical form. Christ's spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, but returned to heaven before the crucifixion. Therefore, Jesus died an accursed death as no more than a mere man. So while glorifying the divine Christ, the Corinthians may have felt perfectly justified in cursing the human Jesus. They would, they would uplift and glorify the spiritual, the divine Christ, the Son of God, but they would denigrate his human body just as they did their own. So some of the early, and I don't want to get into all of them, Jim has done a marvelous job of, of the isms, the false isms that, that began to infiltrate the church right at the very beginning. Arianism, that Jesus was a distinct created being and subordinate to the Father. False. He is the Son of God. He is the divine Son of God who is in every respect equal to and on par with the rest, the other two, uh, uh, and the other two people of the Trinity. People. The other two persons of the Trinity. Then docetism, Jesus only appeared to be human. He didn't appear to be human. He was human. He was a perfect merging of the human with the divine. Nestorianism, humanity and divinity existed separately. If Jesus did not unite humanity to himself, we can't expect to partake of the divine nature. Nestorianism, and there's several others. I was going to list them all out, but again, Jim has done an excellent job of going through all of the, the cultic twisting of scripture that infiltrated the early church. And re, it, it's interesting to me that most of false theology attacks the Lord Jesus. By, by extension, it attacks the Father and the Son as well. But it's directed at the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, or his work upon the cross. And uh, so we should always be suspicious when something is directed in that way against the Lord Jesus. So the first part of this verse, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The first part of this verse is doctrinal. That is the view that a person holds of the Lord Jesus Christ must be consistent with who he is as revealed in Scripture. What we are told about here, that must be our representation of who the Lord Jesus Christ, of what the Lord Jesus Christ is, of why he came. If a person holds a low view of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what he does and says is not of God. Very simple. Everything must be tested against Scripture. If what a person says agrees with Scripture, it is not a new revelation and it is unnecessary. If what a person says does not agree with Scripture, 
It is quite simply false and very possibly heretical. The second phrase in, the, in this verse, Jesus, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, is also a doctrinal consideration. No one confess, no one can confess that Jesus, they can't confess Jesus as Lord sincerely unless they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is a result of regeneration and salvation. There are many who will stand before the Lord and call on Him to admit them into heaven because of all the great things they had done for Him. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. The Lord Jesus said this. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, let me stop there. That implies that there's going to be people who will say, Lord, they'll be standing before Him. We did great things. And, and here's how He answers it. He who does, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And one of the wills of the Father in heaven is to lift up, to honor, to venerate, to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do any of that. He's not going to say that. He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Lord doesn't negate the possibility that they cast out demons, that they perform miracles, or what appeared to be miracles. But he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. To truly confess the Lord, Jesus as Lord, one must be born again. If a person is born again, this is what they will do. They will not defame the Lord Jesus. They will lift him up. They will call him Lord. This verse is not saying that someone cannot say spiritually Jesus is Lord. What it is saying is that the only one who has, tr only one who has trusted Christ can confess him as Lord. That is, claimed him as their own risen Savior and Lord. The word Lord denotes sovereignty and authority. It's the word kurios. And in the Septuagint, it is quite often, if not exclusively, one of the translations of the word that refers to Jehovah God in the Old Testament. It is the same word. It is um, master, one who exercises absolute ownership rights. That is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What one believes about the Lord Jesus Christ is of most import. It is the test, if you will, determining whether or not what he does is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always lead men to lift up the true Savior in his deity, in his manhood, in his finished work on the cross. The Spirit will always affirm that there is only one way to gain entrance into heaven, and that is by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. There are not many ways to heaven. There are not many directions to heaven. The map to heaven has only one road in it. It's a very simple map, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also interesting to note, as one commentator points out, that just as salvation is all of God, so even is the ability to claim and say that Jesus is Lord. He said this, it is to be noted that Paul believed that a man could say Jesus is Lord only when the Spirit enabled him to say it. The Lordship of Jesus was not so much something which he, this man, discovered for himself as something which God, in his grace, revealed to him. Even that is revealed to us and given to us by the Lord Jesus. So what about this saying, calling Lord Jesus Lord? <laughs> I mean, you see all kinds of stuff on on the social media. If you believe Jesus is Lord, paste this into 15,000 threads and say it three times and stomp you. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's not what it's talking about. 
What it's talking about is when we are faced with the decision to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord in our life, we will, we will gladly affirm that. We will not shrink from it. We will not be ashamed of it. Now, does that not mean that there can be some terrifying experiences? Well, I want to talk to you about uh, 111 AD. In 111 AD, during the reign of the Emperor Trajan, one of his governors, Pliny, wrote to him concerning Christians. And I'm going to read to you about uh, Trajan. Interesting. This is one of those things you don't do. You don't come up with new stuff for Sunday school the morning you're going to teach. But I'm sorry, that's what I did. <laughs> yes. It better be thought through. Anyway, in 111, during the reign of the Emperor Trajan, one of his governors, Pliny, wrote to him concerning Christians. It seemed that they were trying to stomp out this new religion. And one of the ways they would affect one of the ways they would affect that was to ask the offending person if he was a Christian. They would give him or her several opportunities to recant, worship the emperor, and denounce or curse Christ. Pliny noted that those who were true Christians would not do that. Now, I want to read to you about Trajan. This is, this is the definition of one of the three or five, five, excuse me, one of the five decent emperors of Rome. Um, he was officially Roman emperor from 98 to 117 A.D., he was declared by the Senate, Optimus Princeps, the best ruler. Trajan is remembered as a successful soldier emperor who presided over the greatest military expansion in Roman history, leading the empire to attain its maximum territorial extent by the time of his death. He is known also for his philanthropic rule, overseeing extensive public building programs while implementing social welfare policies. Does this sound familiar? Nothing is new under the sun. Oh, Jim's teaching on that. Excuse me. Didn't mean to intrude while implementing social welfare policies, which earned him his enduring reputation as the second of the five good emperors who presided over an area of peace and prosperity in the Mediterranean world. This is a good emperor. This is a good emperor, and this is what he will do to Christians when he finds out they are Christians, and they will not recant. I'm going to read. There's a fairly extensive reading here. I've always seen excerpts. I went to the source to make sure... I'm discovering a lot about fake news lately. I went to the source to make sure what we've been reading all these years was probably accurate. So, so Gaius Plinius, or Plin, it's how it's written here, to the Emperor Trajan, he says, I consider it, Master, a duty to consult with you on all matters concerning which I have experienced any doubts. For who can better direct my hesitation or instruct my ignorance? So he's lifting up the Emperor. That's, those are nice buttered up words. I have never taken part in an investigation of the Christians. Thus, I, I do not know how or to what extent they should be punished or examined. Nor have the following points caused me inconsequential uncertainties. Here are the points. Should age make some difference? Or should there be no distinction between the youngest and the more mature? Should clemency be granted to repentance? Or should it be of no benefit to one who has wholeheartedly been a Christian to have ceased? In other words, if he was wholeheartedly but he ceased, shouldn't that benefit him? He's, he's stopped claiming Christ. Should the name of Christian itself, if without offense, or should the offenses necessarily attaching to the name, be punished? Just the name of Christian be punished. So he's asking this good emperor. Meanwhile, he says, against those who have been denounced to me as Christians, this is the policy I have followed. I asked them if they were Christians. Those who concurred, I asked a second and a third time with threats of capital punishment. This is under a good emperor. Those who persevered, I ordered to be handed over. For I had no doubt, whatever they were confessing, that stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy should be punished. There were others exhibiting similar mental instability. That's what they were calling, believing, 
that's a phrase I've heard used today about believers, should there were others exhibiting similar mental instability whom, because they were Roman citizens, I directed to be sent on to Rome. Presently, as a result of this very procedure, as often happens, the accusations becoming more prevalent, several varieties have come to light. An anonymous list was posted containing the names of many people. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, I thought should be dismissed. If they first invoked the gods in my presence and sacrificed with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought forward for this purpose together with the statues of the gods, in parentheses, and moreover, they cursed Christ, which those who are truly Christians can, it is said, in no way be forced to do. There's that famous quote. They curse Christ, which, he says, um, those who are truly Christians can, it is said, in no way be forced to do. Others, named in the list, admitted that they had been Christians, but presently denied it. They had been once, but they had given it up some three years ago, others several years ago, or one even 20 years ago. When your skin's on the line, you'll be amazed at what you might say or not say. That's not in the text, by the way. All of these worshipped, also worshipped your images, the ones that recanted. All of these worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. What does Paul say? The Holy Spirit will not lead someone to do that. And cursed Christ. However, they insisted that this was the sum of their fault and error, that they were accustomed to convene. Now here's what the Christians were doing that was so dangerous to the peace of the, of the uh, emperor and of the Roman Empire. Here's what they confessed to doing. They were accustomed to convene of a given day before dawn and sing a hymn antiphonally to Christ as if to a God and to bind themselves by oath for the purpose of some crime, but so as not to commit theft or brigandage, which is gangs, that was gangs, roaming gangs that robbed travelers, or adultery or to betray an oath or to withhold something held in trust. It was then their custom to disperse and join together again to breakfast but on common and harmless foods. So these people that were such a danger to the, to the empire they wouldn't steal, they would keep their oaths, they would not participate in robbing travelers, they would not withhold something held in trust, they would treat people well. These are the people that were being turned over. Could that happen today? None of you probably belong to any gangs. Are any of you contributing to the adulterous situation in the world today? Probably not. You're killing people? You're lying? Are you taking things that don't belong to you? Are you withholding things that you have held in trust? You're in danger. <laughs> so then he says, they had even ceased doing this since my edict, which in accordance with your order, forbade secret societies. Forbade secret societies. I am all the more inclined to believe this since in search of the truth, I tortured two of their serving girls, whom they called deaconesses, and found out nothing other than perverse and immoderate superstition. I have therefore suspended my investigations and turned to you for advice. It seems to me that the affair is worthy of your notice, especially because of the number of those endangered. There were a lot of Christians. Of many age, for many of every age or every rank and of either sex are called and will be called into danger. He says, if we continue this investigation, there's a lot of them out there and I don't want to have to kill them all is what he's saying. The contagion of that superstition has infected not only the cities, but the villages and the farms as well. Isn't that a testimony to the spread of the gospel? A marvelous testimony to the spread of the gospel. Though I believe it can be halted and corrected, certainly it is long interrupted, certainly it is 
generally agreed that all but deserted temples, that the all but deserted temples have once again begun to be filled and that the long interrupted sacred ceremonies are being performed and that the victims are being fattened for which hitherto only an occasional buyer could be found. From which circumstance one may surmise that the common throng of humanity can be improved if only given an opportunity for repentance. So in other words, his work has um, suppressed it somewhat and people are going back to worshiping like the Corinthians struggled with in verse 1 the in the pagan way. So then Trajan replies, this beneficent emperor who was one of the five best emperors of Rome from a peace and kindness and philanthropy point of view. My dear Secundus, that's Pliny's first name, you have acted as you should in conducting the trials of those denounced to you as Christians. Indeed, no form could be devised which could be considered universally applicable. They should not be sought out. If they should be denounced and convicted, they must be punished. But nonetheless, one who has denied that he is a Christian and has proven his denial by his actions, that is, who has sacrificed to our gods, though suspect in the past, must nevertheless obtain mercy through his repentance. Anonymously posted lists should have no place in any trial. Such would be bad precedent and unworthy of these times. He was supporting their Fourth Amendment rights. But if they were Christians, kill them. And this was a good emperor. My point is that this would have been some of what the Corinthians would have been facing. Positive affirmation of a love for and a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ could have been a death sentence. So I want to give them some room. I want to give them a little bit of room as they, as they may have said these, these untoward things. It would have been a frightening time to live. The point, I guess, also that I'm making is that it's possible we may be moving into some such frightening time where a simple acknowledgement that you are a believer will at least today get you excoriated, if not, if not shouted at and made fun of. And in certain instances, if you're involved with them, if there's a mob present, you could be hurt, you could be harmed. That could happen today in America. This was far more, far more sinister and far more difficult. But Paul is saying, in verse 3, he's saying, <laughs> no one speaking by the Spirit of God would do what Pliny was trying to get those Christians to do. They would not say that Jesus is accursed. They would say to his face, and gladly, Jesus is Lord. But they would do it by the Holy Spirit. Are you, isn't that a comfort to know that it's the Holy Spirit that will be there for you? He's got your six, or he's got your back, that's a, Silly saying sometimes, but not really. We know what it means in the modern vernacular. He will enable you. So then Paul says, he, he moves on to verse 4. <coughs> oh, any questions about verse 3? Now, after all that, he says, now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Only the third person of the Trinity, only the Holy Spirit will give the gifts that he has for each Christian. Paul explains to the Corinthians that there are many different kinds of gifts, but all of them come from the same Holy Spirit. This should and does imply that each and every gift coming from the hand of God is a good gift, a usable and a beneficial blessing to the church at large and to the individual. Do not confuse the spiritual gifts with natural talents. Both believers and unbelievers can be skilled. Carpenters, athletes, cooks, musicians, artists, Name the discipline. God has given to the whole human race 
a common grace, a blessing for abilities that we should all be grateful for. You don't want a logger cooking your breakfast. Well, some loggers might know how to cook. When I was a logger, I didn't know how to cook. Boil water and I could burn it. So I guess the point I'm making is they have skills. And God has given these skills, these abilities to the whole human race as a blessing, as a natural blessing. Spiritual gifts, however, only come as a result of salvation. They are not natural. They are supernatural, given from the hand of the Holy Spirit. Everyone has spiritual gifts. Look at verse 7 really quickly. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Everyone, everyone in this room that is a born-again believer in the Son of God is gifted by the Holy Spirit. And gifted means just what it means. It doesn't mean a blah, blah, something that sets you up. It means a gift. It means something wondrous, something effective, something useful, something that's a blessing to both you and to the church at large. Uh, everyone is given them. No one is left out. The unity of the body is enhanced by the diversity of the gifts. Uh, if everybody was the same, most of us would be unnecessary. If everything was a hand, we wouldn't hear anything. Paul says stuff like that. And I'll leave it. I, I don't want to steal Paul's thunder. <laughs> Frankly, if all of us are the same, we, most of us would be unnecessary. Eleven quarterbacks will likely lose every game. Especially if no, I'm not going to get into I'm not going to get into football politics. <laughs> the word varieties is implied. The word used essentially means apportionments or allotments or distribution. God has a multiplicity of gifts, and He gives them specifically and carefully in a manner that unites that gift best with the person that needs it, that he intended for it. It best suits that person. This will enable them to serve effectively in the church and in the world. The gifts fall into two general categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. I don't have the overhead, so if you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. <clears throat> and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be right back here if you're writing this down. And then Romans 12. And then 1 Peter 4. Oh, back to 1 Peter 4. Let's just let's do this. Whoever speaks in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So then all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. A wonderful combination there. Your gift was designed to glorify God through Christ. The Spirit gives it. You glorify the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Trinity is involved in your life in serving Him. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then the gifts are listed here. They're listed here and in Romans and in a limited way back in 1 Peter. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, right here, verses 8 through 10. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Then verse 6 through 8 of Romans 12, if you could go there. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
Is it? Well, I won't get off into that, but sometimes it's, it, you can show mercy, but it's, it's hard. You do it through grit teeth. Shows mercy with cheerfulness. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he lists them, whoever speaks, whoever serves. The three lists of gifts are not exactly the same, and so it seems the Lord never really intended for us to have a precise list that we could check off on some sort of test. The gifts can be overlapping in the, in the believer's life. He or she may have more, one or more, but the way the Holy Spirit distributes them the gifts that a person has will be mutually beneficial and effective. Someone may be very strong in one gift with only minor tendencies in others. The point is, as we use these gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit, it becomes apparent what they are. Someone may be excellent in service, but less so in teaching. Another may have the ability to exhort, to lead, and teach. The point is, God intended for us to use these gifts that were given to us for the blessing of the body and for the world at large. Sometimes a football player, for example, finds out about a different talent. I'm, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a metaphor, metaphorical connection or a, sim, a similarity here between the talents, but he may find out about a different talent from a different position. Maybe as a halfback, he finds out that he can pass, and he ends up becoming a quarterback. He discovers that he has two talents. Same with the gifts. You find out what your gifts are sometimes in the using, in the serving, in the doing. Further meaning in this verse can be derived from the fact that Paul phrases this in such a way to remind that every, everyone that it is the Spirit of God who distributes these gifts. He would not give one a better than another. There are no gooder gifts. They are all from the hand of Almighty God. They are all a best blessing and a, beneficent, a beneficent giving to the body of Christ so that people can be blessed by their own gift and they can bless others by using it. Everything from the Father's hand is good, it is wondrous, and it is useful. The Corinthians had apparently been misunderstanding this, and some of them were arrogantly assuming that their gift was better than the gifts that others had, or their gift wasn't quite up to snuff from what others had. Paul will deal with this later. And I was going to make it through verse 7, but we're not going to make it today. So let's, let's stop here. There's a variety of gifts. They all come from the same Spirit. Does God love any one of His beloved more than the others? Does He love you all? Would He give you a bad gift? Would you get a, a lump of coal like Charlie Brown? No. No, whatever He is, the Holy Spirit has given into your life is a blessing, it's useful, it's beneficial for you. But if it's under a bushel, if it's not being used, then that particular work that God had planned. Now, here's where we get into sovereignty, and I'm not going to I'm not going to lengthen this out by ex exploring all of those aspects. But the point is, if you're not using your gift, there's an un there's a blessing that the church would have that is not happening. God gave every one of us here gifts, every one of us abilities, supernatural abilities, and He wants us to use them. Let us be about the work of God so that we learn what those gifts are. And it's interesting to note that often, well, not often, probably most of the time, the gifts will tie in with your natural talents, but not always. Often, God will let your weakness be made strong through the gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. Let's pray. Father, from your hand comes nothing but good. You have said in Romans that all things work together for good to those that are called according to your purpose, and that we might 
use those things would be our prayer today. We might properly seek your hand, seek your wisdom, seek your enabling so that as we use them, we use them for your glory through the Lord Jesus Christ at the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.